Welcome to the History and Physical, the official medical student podcast of In Training Magazine. We're your hosts, Kevin Wong, Amol Donker, and Rohit Kakade. How are digital networks changing the way we publicize our voices, and is it doing anything to the typical hierarchical structure of medicine? Those are good questions, Kevin. There's a lot going on social media regarding sharing information, discussion, and I think most importantly, authorship. The typical notion of publication in medicine, getting an article or a paper in a prestigious journal with high impact factor, is falling to the wayside as the democratization of information renders researchers, physicians, and medical students more accessible. We had a chance to talk with AJ Major and Alina Paul, two enterprising medical students from Albany Medical College, on how they are contributing to that movement. The duo are founders of In Training Magazine, our collaborators for this podcast, and are bent on creating a space online where medical student voices can be heard. Hey, guys. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hey, so Alina and AJ. Um, why don't you guys actually first explain to those of uh, who have never been on the site exactly what you guys uh, do and who you are. Okay, so, I mean, well, first of all, thank you everyone for listening to us. Thank you for having us. So, for I, I guess we have to go back to when we were undergrads to kind of really talk about what in-training is mm-hmm. and what, you know, what our vision is with this publication. So Ajin and I both went to Union College, which is a small liberal arts college in Schenectady, New York. We just won our first hockey Division One game. Yay! Go <laughs> <No>, Union! <laughs> so when we were there, we were both really, um, we were firstly, we were in their leadership in medicine program, which is an eight-year program with Union College, Union Graduate College, and Albany Medical College. So in that way, we actually got a lot of exposure to the medical field as undergraduates. So that was one aspect of our lives. The second aspect of it was that we really got heavily, heavily involved in the Union College newspaper called the Concordiensis. So Ajay was editor-in-chief, and I was managing editor for two years. So during those, well, four years at Union and those two years when we were in these positions, we had a great opportunity to really immerse ourselves into the field of journalism and at the same time, be, you know, be pre-medical students as well. And we gained a lot of value from our time just working with the paper. So when we started to think about our transition to medical school, you know, Lena and I both knew we wanted to stay involved in journalism. We wanted to keep writing. And so we actually went down um, to a conference, uh, the Student National Medical Association Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. And we actually went to a talk by Dr. Tyrese Gaines, who is a physician journalist. And we got to talk to her a little bit after her talk, um, and we were thinking, oh, do we want to restart our medical school's, you know, newspaper, which had kind of been defunct for a while? What did we want to do? And she said that, you know, pretty simple advice, that the new age of journalism is online. It's the Internet. Okay. And so actually that night at a restaurant in Atlanta <laughs> on a bunch of napkins, we came up with the idea for in-training the online magazine for medical students. And, you know, fast forward two years, we created this what we like to call the agora of the medical student community. It's the Grecian word for the intellectual center. We really want to create a place where medical students can 
communicate, collaborate, and self-reflect on what it means to be a medical student in a way that is available to the public um, and is a way for them to kind of build catharsis around it. And so today, to this day, we published uh, almost 350 articles by over 150 writers at over 70 institutions in U.S., Canada, Ireland, UAE, Dutch Antilles, and India. Yes. Did I miss any? I think that's all of it for now. <laughs> I'm sure we'll add a few more by the by the end of this podcast. <laughs> So I guess for us, you know, when when we initially had this idea, we looked and we saw that there really weren't there weren't and there wasn't anyone doing like medical journalism from like a medical student perspective. Right. There were obviously, you know, a lot of journalists out there that once in a while took a piece from a medical student or there would be a medical school or an organization that would kind of have its own publication. But there was nothing out there to really talk about the collective voice of the medical student. And as we know, like, you know, we all come in with a variety of interests and passions, and we wanted to help develop that in our peers moving forward so that we can make the healthcare system better. Right. Kind of lofty goals, but I think we're getting there. That's you know, what's yeah. interesting about uh, literature in medicine is that when you talk to any kind of doctor, or a medical student, the term literature literally refers to medical journals that you uh, alluded to earlier. And it would seem that we have been trained to only take seriously what we read in those journals because they're vetted and peer-reviewed and whatnot. Um, how do you see, how do you two see this new medium of writing online for medicine by medical students comparing to what is uh, the, the standard, so to speak, these, these journals? That's a great question. So, you know, one of the first things that Ajay and I noticed when we were starting in training was that there were quite a few anonymous blogs out there. You know, I personally love my Tumblr. I love following, you know, what other medical students are doing, what other pre-med students are doing on Tumblr and other forums like that. But we felt that this anonymous forum really doesn't provide accountability for what you're saying. So going back to your questions about, like, you know, why do we... In, in medical, in the medical community, when we think literature, why do we think medical journals? It's because they are peer-reviewed, peer-edited. And that's something we definitely wanted to bring into what we were doing it in training. We, one of the first things we do, did is very strongly solidify our editorial process so that every piece that comes into in training Firstly, is read by you know two to three medical student uh, editors, so every piece is peer edited, and you know and that doesn't include just checking for grammar or spelling, which is important, but also looking at the content of the pieces that we were getting, and then every piece that we publish has the student's name on it and the student's school on it again to build accountability, and I think it's those small changes that we did and really. You know, we weren't working against the current medical system, but working alongside with the, the certain emphasis that it had. And I think that's what allows us to basically create accountability um, for, for in-training. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we try to do in in-training is we're really trying to induce a paradigm shift in medical education. Medical education for so long has been, as you said, so much about literature and research. And there's this whole other component, the art of medicine, the humanism of medicine, that are in many ways as important, if not more important, to the practice of the healing art. And so by increasing the perceived legitimacy of those studies, what we're really hoping to do is enable students to feel more confident in their ability to talk about those in public spheres in a way that we feel is equal to you know, the, the, the research and, and, and you know, the literature that we call today. 
And I think what it comes down to is, you know, once we start doing it within our medical educations, when we move forward and we become the residents and we become the attendings, we're going to be a lot more open to students coming uh, after us who are interested in the same, the same interests and the same fields. And, and I think that's really important. And I think what that shows is, you know, when you come into medical school, like everyone coming into medical school is not the same cookie cutter. You did X number of science and that's it, or you did this many research. People come in with so many passions, so many backgrounds, whether it's in policy or public health. And why should that have to disappear, you know, during these four years that you're in medical school? Right. Let's right. solidify and internalize those interests so that they can really be used in a productive way in, in improving yeah. And I think the more you talk about it, the more legitimacy you get. Yeah. Right. And I agree with that. Like, as someone who's entering the whole medical school uh, I, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> no, yeah, it, it was fantastic answering the question. And as, um, you know, that just mm -hmm. reflects on when I was visiting my pre-med advisor and talking about the whole AM class application cycle, really you're only given one page to actually talk about who you are and what you believe and what you want to do in medicine um, and everything else is, like you said, the cookie cutter. You have to do research. You know, publications, literature is very important to, to an application um, and, you know, volunteering. But that's only a certain part of it, and it doesn't necessarily depict your entire voice or give an opportunity to go through all those nuances. And so I think, you know, you're right. Things like in-training where you are accountable and it's your face that's on the site is, is more productive than, say, something uh, – on, on Medium or on, on Tumblr where you write a lot. There are a lot of anonymous um, uh, physicians and, and pre-med voices out there or medical student voices. I mean, the, the biggest medical Tumblr right now is what, Cranky? Um, is he still yeah. the biggest one? That and yep. Wayfaring MD? They're still completely anonymous out of, out of fear. And I was um, initially, when I started getting, started to write, I mean, Rohi with the biopsy was a big reason why I wanted to do that. And I remember... Rohi, even you back then, you weren't completely 100% transparent about who you were either, were you? Um, I, I think when I first started the biopsy, I purposely did not uh, say what undergrad I was at. So I started the biopsy.com when I was a senior in high school, not high school, <laughs> senior in college. Whoa. And, um, and uh, I did not say that I was from UCSD. And then halfway through, I kind of realized, like, oh, you know what? Maybe transparency isn't that bad of a thing. So I put a, I was up on UCSD. And now I tell everyone that I'm at OHSU. And if anything, it's, it's given me more credibility because mm -hmm. I'm open and honest with other people. They can, there's some concreteness to my identity online. And um, I think that really helps put some legitimacy behind what I say. Right. Yeah. And, you know, transparency, that's a really great way to frame it. I mean, we see a lot of this kind of training people talking about their experiences with the emotions they feel when a patient dies or their own struggles with their own mental health during medical school. And I think being able to put a face to those names, I know from one of the recent articles we posted about a student's struggle with mental health, we got an enormous outpouring of support on social media and to our inboxes, you know, from people saying, listen, that's my same struggle. Yeah. And building transparency to it removes a lot of the stigma and it allows us to really move forward as a profession. And and I think for the longest time, like, you know, I might be generalizing here, but for the longest time, like, we as medical students or as a medical profession, we haven't talked about our own health. We haven't talked about, you know, the transformative experiences that we're going through when we're in medical school. And it's kind of like you take these amazing people and you put them in a magic box for four years and out pops these physicians, like, and nobody had a look into what was going on. Uh, during those four years. 
And at the same time, you know, we heard stories like anecdotally from different writers when we were initially starting off about how they had tried to express themselves within their school's own boundaries and had pretty much been chastised. You know, been chastised mm -hmm. by either saying, oh, you shouldn't talk about this, or you won't get into a residency if you talk about what a difficult time you had in this rotation. But that's the nature of medicine. You can't expect us to go through four years of medical school, you know, go from somebody who, you know, has an idea that they want to help people and come out and actually be able to help people <laughs> and not, you know, really appreciate the process that happens in between. Yeah, I, I would actually completely agree with that. Um, I think one of the systemic problems in in medical culture is that um, we we undergo something called uh, well, we exist in something called permission-based culture. Um, yeah. that was like a term that Brian Vardabedian of Thirty Three Charts uh, kind of coined when I was talking with him or watching one of his um, presentations at Stanford Medicine X. And it's interesting because. You know, we have a permission-based culture primarily because of patient care. We don't want to make mistakes, so we always have people proof what we say. And um, I think that, that plays into Alina's point that, you know, by, by not being transparent, by not showing people that we are human too, we kind of close ourselves off to showing patients that we are truly human. Right. I mean, yeah. a lot of that – sorry, uh, AJ, why don't you go ahead? Go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so a lot of that, I mean, it even extends onto the whole residency process or the whole medical school process. Um, and as, as physicians later on in the future, um, I mean, there's a whole research field. I mean, right now, the Society for General Internal Medicine um, is meeting in San Diego, and they're discussing, there was one workshop that was very interesting called the Second Victims um, Workshop, and it was actually looking at, you know, physicians who either committed medical errors or were getting burnt out but too afraid to talk about it. Um, and how to cope with that or how to develop interventions so that we actually uh, prevent that. Um, and the whole burnout issue itself, without ways to express yourself or make sure that you're known, I mean, to be honest, right now it's, I think it's still considered a sign of weakness not, not being able to, um, you know, work out through all the residency work hours. I mean, it's even been decreased. And if, if you complain about it, I think some interns would probably feel that they would be chastised as well for... Uh, appearing week, and I know that. Um, I mean, currently I'm working at an orthopedic center, and uh, you know the the orthopedic stereotype is uh, you know full of jocks and stuff, and that's actually not entirely false because there was a there's a presentation and they were talking about drilling screws into into the spine, and uh, when uh, a doctor said that he uses a power drill to do that, you know people laughed at him and says, oh, what age did you start using that at? Um, just because uh, it, it was an indication of weakness. So the whole you know permission based culture, the whole uh, uh, desire to be risk averse because you do have two hundred thousand dollars in medical debt that you need to pay back is it's kind of like a systemic problem in uh, in medicine. Yeah, and you know, and to to address both of your points, you know, Rohit, uh, you know, I I was at a um, I was attending a panel that Dr. Varvain did at the AAMC conference that was all about this. You know, as part of this kind of the solution to this permission permission based culture is addressing it by really educating students. I mean, what it really comes down to is if you can, at the medical student level, or even before, as a pre-medical student, you know, for you, Kevin, you know, getting students to really understand the power of these tools and helping them to improve their careers, you know, address burnout, et cetera, et cetera, if you can build that in early, in, in a systematic and educational way, this is the argument that he made, you know, you can really start to to change this culture for the better. And I think, Alina, you had a great article you were going to bring up. Exactly. So I was just thinking about um, 
back in February, I want to say, there's a physician named Richard Gunderland, I believe is his name, and he published a piece in The Atlantic called uh, For the Young Doctor About to Burn Out. And it's, you know, if, if anyone has, hasn't had a chance to read it, I would definitely check it out because he talks about this idea that we as medical students, and obviously this isn't true for everyone, but for a lot of medical students, we come in very idealistic, at, you know, looking to provide compassionate care to our patients. And research has shown that over the course of four years, by the time we graduate, we're less compassionate, we're less empathetic, and we're less willing to pretty much help people and we've somehow lost those ideals. And in this article, he talks about the idea that, you know, it's not just that medical school is stressful or that medical school has a lot of tests or exams or evaluations, but it's this idea there are these small instances where something happens in the medical student's experience that can basically push them along two paths. They can move along the path of being burned out or less compassionate, or they can take that time to reflect on their experiences and really learn and grow from it. We believe that, you know, so far in medicine and within the established medical culture, an avenue or a forum does not exist for that. So we're hoping that within training that will come that will come across. That if a medical student has an experience that they believe is profoundly changing them and they need a way to work that out, they come to in training and they can they can really work that out themselves with the help of their peers. This this theory is great, but I'm also kind of interested in what is it like to be a medical student and then also be entrepreneurs and starting this whole venture. I think for a lot of medical students, they believe that once you're in medical school, your sole objective is to get through medical school. And we're starting to see this proliferation of medical students who are doing a little bit more than just becoming doctors. Much like you, they're, they're creating organizations and stuff like that. So my question is, what is it like on a day-to-day -day basis to go to medical school and do in-training? And then, what, you know, what's something really frustrating, like in-training? So, honestly, it's a great question. And when Ali and I first started publication, and when I speak with other medical student entrepreneurs, a lot of us, a lot of our needs and our passions for our organizations and our, our entrepreneurial projects come from this need to satiate something that we're not finding in medicine. So in the case that, you know, Ali and I... We were looking for writing, we were looking for journalism, we were looking for a way to engage those interests. And honestly, you kind of have to be overly optimistic and naive. When we started in training, we said, oh, you know, we want to start this publication. We're just kind of, kind of, we're going to see where it goes. And it grew into something that we never anticipated because it just happened, you know, we worked with it, it fit a niche that, we, that, that needed to be filled. So as far as what's frustrating is often is that you have to be overly optimistic in a lot of ways to be an entrepreneur. Because you have to have vision. You have to have a, a forward direction. But sometimes, you know, balancing that optimism and not becoming cynical and balancing it with, you know, uh, the grounded realities of, you know, for the first two years sitting in a library for hours and hours a day ends up being very frustrating. And you have to find these moments of clarity with your organization that, that make you want to keep going forward. In the case of, at least I'll speak for myself, you know, going to conferences and speaking with students. I was just at an AMSA conference presenting in training just a few months ago, and I met a woman who was uh, a medical student. She's a first year. She's kind of burned out. We had a long, engaging conversation about how meaningful it was for her to be a writer in undergrad, and I actually just received an article from her that we'll be publishing soon. You know, really engaging with people on that level about what the organization's mission is and what we're passionate about, for me, provides those moments of clarity to really push forward and get over the frustrating parts of running, running a publication. And I think also, you know, at the going to like the day-to-day, -day, yes, it definitely takes a lot of time management, 
But I think, you know, I, I think I speak for both Ajay and I when we say that we're not individuals who could sit down, you know, go to the go to the library in the morning at 8 a.m., sit there all day and just study, because that's not a productive use of my time. If I say, okay, I need to have these few pieces edited and published by this time, I need to get through this much of lecture, I can better structure my day and find a better use for the time that I have. I think I tend to waste less time. And mind you, I still watch plenty of TV and you know, <laughs> get, get all my reading in, in as well. But I think really being having a project like this helps you really develop those time management skills. I think two other things is that I think your education when you're in medical school, I think it goes better when you have something to look forward to, whether it's, you know, we always see in training as kind of like a break from the day-to-day, -day, like, schoolwork. But in addition, it's something to look forward to, like, for the future. Right. You know that, yes, right now medical school is hard and there's a lot of things you need to learn and a lot of pathways you need to memorize, but you get a sense of what that goal you're working towards is, I think a lot earlier than other students would. So it's kind of like, you know, we don't have to wait until third year clinical rotations to kind of get a sense of what that will be because we're getting it through the stories that are being sent to us by our peers. It provides a context, a exactly. really good context for what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think finally it's definitely, you know, asking for help. We definitely spoke to all of our deans and our advisors about what we're doing and we try to get ideas from them. Honestly, like even the fact that we're here today, right now in Canada for this Canadian Medical Education Conference is because one of our deans was like, oh yeah, you guys should think about, you know, looking to an international conference. We kind of laughed it off, but here we are. So I think you definitely need to find those people within your medical school or wherever you are at to champion you and really sponsor your work and really kind of push you forward. Yeah. So on to that, I mean, I know that some medical schools or deans and professors can be a bit conservative. They still believe that, you know, medical students, their sole job is to go off and become physicians. Um, I mean, I know that there have been conversations in the past where uh, entrepreneurs have been discouraged because or they've been recommended to take time off instead rather than having them distract from the medical student experience. Uh, what was your experience like actually creating in training and um, finding your, your deans or your, your professors to support you and champion um, your mission? So uh, it's a good question. When we started, we both have our, our MBAs in healthcare administration, so we really had a great foundation provided by our, our training in business, marketing, finance, etc., that provided a good framework for us. You know, Alina and I actually, when we started in training, we pretty much were doing it on our own. It was really coming and approaching you know, the deans as we were getting off our feet and as we were trying to find, you know, new opportunities, as Alina was talking about, that allowed us to kind of move forward in that way. But that's what I keep saying is, honestly, sometimes you just have to take a leap of faith and, and you have to be ready to, to roll with the punches, be organic, change as your organization changes, and as Alina said, you know, find the resources that you need when you need them. I think that's, you know, being flexible is a, is, is, is a really big component, especially for medical students who... You know, so much of our life is, you know, is is taken by by our, our medical training. You know, I think a lot of people try to make these like really strong plans for what happens. You just gotta you gotta be flexible. You gotta go with the flow. And the th you know the thing that you said about some deans and some medical schools being more conservative than others. That's very true. Very true. And I think it's kind of this idea of finding the best fit. And you might not know that you know when you you pick on a school, but this is idea that there is a paradigm shift happening in medicine 
and you just need to find those resources wherever you can. It might not be at your own medical school or your own institution. It might be somebody you happen to run into at a conference or somebody like a, a piece that you read in a magazine. But I think you have you do have to put yourself out there. You yeah. do have to send that email that says, hey, I read this article. It really resonated with me. I have a few ideas. Can you help? And I, I think we found that you know, most individuals in the medical profession, especially those who are in academic medicine, are looking to help in some fashion. And even if they're not really sure exactly how they're, they're, it's going to go, they're willing to take a second look at it. Right. Okay. This is really good stuff. Um, so to end our show today, on a little bit of a lighthearted note, what I want to do is <laughs> ask you a very unorthodox question. Are you guys ready? <laughs> go for it. Go for it. It's a would-you-rather question, so we're, like, bringing it back to sixth grade here. Um, would you rather uh, – okay, here it goes. Would you rather change genders every time you sneeze or be unable to distinguish between a baby and a muffin? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Wait, can you give that to me one more time? I want to make sure okay. I Okay, one more time. Would you rather – uh, change genders every time you sneeze, or be able, be unable to distinguish between a baby and a muffin. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna say I'm gonna go with the changing genders when I sneeze because I think that could be kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look how imagine, imagine all the medical textbooks that would be written about you with the ability to sneeze. <laughs> Talk about literature getting you into yeah. residency. Honestly, I do have to admit, like, you know, I'm also very involved in, like, you know, work that women physicians do about just, like, gender parity. Like, I, I've, I've, you know, I've been heavily involved in the American Medical Women's Association, and we just ha recently had a thing about how women physicians are still making less on the dollar than male physicians. I would like to check that out. I want to know why that's happening. <laughs> so I'm going to go with so, that. So, you want to end on a lighter note, but we're still in it to go. We're policy ready. Literally, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you guys have thought about this. Muffin Association, so I take... No, I'm kidding. Um, no, you know what? I, I don't really like muffins, so I just... I would just never... I would just never... I guess I just... I can't go to pediatrics then. <laughs> <laughs> Your peds rotations are going to be very difficult. I'm trying to intubate a muffin or a baby. <laughs> I mean, no, that's not even like, what happens if you get hungry? I mean, that's, that's very concerning. I mean, just in terms of the legal ramifications of that question. <laughs> Starbucks would become a very confusing place. <laughs> We just finished our repro theme, and I'm just thinking, like, I'm thinking about that, like, physiology lecture we had on, like, what happens in pregnancy for two hours. What happens if you're giving birth to a, a muffin? To a muffin. <laughs> I don't know where you found this question, but please, like, Google. Keep, keep doing more of these. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank yeah, you, thank guys. Thank you for having us. The H&P Podcast is a podcast by students for students. We're looking to evolve with you, so feel free to reach out to us via email, Twitter, Tumblr, via the show notes, or on the in-training website. If you like us, please consider subscribing on iTunes and giving us a five-star rating. The H&P is a member of Vocalis, a podcast network for medical students. Please listen to our partners at Vocalis Network.com.
www.wix.com slash listen.